Welcome to AEW Unrestricted, the official podcast of All Elite Wrestling. I'm Aubrey Edwards, here with legendary commentator Tony Schiavone. I'm pointing down. I don't know what direction you are on the video. Pointing down? Okay. Either way. Uh, I'm here with Tony Schiavone. He's pretty cool. I'm also here today. We are also here today with um, Colt Cabana. And I'm like legit nervous about this because Colt is a podcasting legend uh, when it comes to wrestling podcasts. And I'm super, super stoked to have you here. You've got a giant list of accolades, which I'm not going to go into because I'm sure we'll talk about pretty much everything in your long, extensive history. But yeah, you were the host of Art of Wrestling podcast, which had a very, very long run. Uh, still still am, and it's still going. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I think you had taken like a break or it slowed down or... Um, I, I just, I'm not doing it weekly. I did it weekly for almost nine years, and now I, I, I'm putting it out in kind of seasons now. But yes, go on. I, I enjoy listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you've got a new Twitch channel. Yeah. Started that in June of this year, I think. Yeah. That's fun. Uh, and then the Wrestling Road Diaries documentary series. Three of them. I got three of them. Three of them, yes. And uh, self-described semi-professional comedian. Yeah, I'll, I'll throw that on the list. Sure. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're very happy to have you here today and happy to have you at AEW. Like, you're a huge wonderful wrestler to work with in the ring you're a fantastic coach backstage just a lot of value that you add to our team and our family and our company well i appreciate that very much i think it's very cool that aew has an official podcast and uh i've been enjoying my time with aew so far uh, it's pretty wild my story coming into aew and only you know having two matches and then going right into uh, pandemic professional wrestling PPW, <laughs> but it's it's been great and everyone has been great and I'm excited to talk about a little wrestling with you guys today. You know, you said just days before the pandemic uh, that I had a, I have different ideas and goals throughout my career in wrestling. And how did AEW factor in all those ideas and goals? Uh, I assume you're you're talking about my pin tweet over there at at yes. Cabana. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, I was part of this kind of movement um, very early and. You know who know I don't know exactly who thinks of what AEW is, but the way I see it, I really I see it as um, essentially when Matt and Nick and, and Kenny and Hangman and, and uh, Cody and everyone kind of like started tapping into the potential of underground wrestling and the underground fan who was just sick of what was put on television for so long and it was our only option. And so the idea of tapping into this fan that wanted something different is something that I've believed in for so long now, just because I never really thought I would get to a higher, higher, higher stage in my career, but I loved wrestling and I always had this crazy uh, entrepreneurial spirit in my veins and I wanted to be a pro wrestler and I, I eventually pretty early achieved the idea of being a pro wrestler, but not like a, a rich pro wrestler, like a, a real struggling artist. And for long, I always championed those days of the independent wrestler and, and the independent thought, kind of doing the thing that makes you happy and doing the thing that makes wrestling fans happy and not under some kind of crazy structure. And I really believe that it's all molded into AEW, you know, through those guys and a lot of the EVPs. And of course, obviously, Tony, you know, giving the platform and allowing it and taking a risk and a gamble. And uh, I, that's just what I think. It's this idea of, uh, let's do wrestling the way we think we should do wrestling and not the way somebody else should do wrestling. Yeah, that makes for, uh, it, it almost makes us a kind of a mainstream wrestling organization that's not mainstream. 
Does that make sense? Yes, of course. It's because it's weird, right? Because the ideals are a lot of underground thought, but the reality is it's right. It's on Turner Broadcasting and it's right. You know, there's a lot going behind it. So, uh, you know, a lot of people, they play it so safe and, and, and AEW does play it safe to a degree because you have to in some manners, but when there's all this money and all this corporate stuff and all of this stuff, you just don't want to make anybody mad. But, you know, AEW seems to really still have that heart and spirit of like, let's just do whatever's fun and cool. You talk about the idea of the best friends coming down in, in Trent's mom's van. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you know, like anywhere else in the back in the locker room, everyone's going, that's the greatest idea ever. Let's do that. And then it gets to a point and it gets thrown away and you're like, come on. For real, though, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. And the idea that at AEW, not only was it like said in a locker room once, it was then brought up the chain and everyone was like, the best. That's the best. Right. And so sure. I think that really, I think Sue Beretta really <laughs> demonstrates Beretta. the ideals of uh, AEW. You know, the top five moments as voted on by the fans on that episode, that was the number one moment. Of course. Yeah. That's <laughs> just tremendous. Sue's more over than like half of her roster. <laughs> Sign her up. <laughs> Sue is all elite. Speaking of Sue being all elite, Colt, I know you made your debut at Revolution in Chicago, Chicago, Illinois, uh, where you're from, which I, I absolutely love that it all worked out that way. But you had been on Dark, I think, before doing some commentary. Yes. On top of that, I think shortly after it was announced your signing, I remember, correct me if I'm wrong. I remember there was a video package that we had put out of you basically saying you were one of the first people not in the EVPs to know about AEW. Yeah, yeah. So it was all in. And again, I've I've been really close with the Young Bucks for years now. And, you know, they'll go back and they'll talk about the idea of like kind of watching my hustle a little bit and trying to understand it and a little, you know, some inspiration of taking this idea of being like, you can be an independent full-time pro wrestler and you could, you could do really well at it. If you know how to do it and you know how to navigate it and if you play it right and you don't try to be something you're not and you really be true to yourself, you know, the bucks, I'm someone that they've talked to and they'll, you know, ask stuff and, you know, they'll ask advice and yeah, they like pulled me aside and they were like, Hey, this thing is happening. I know you don't, you know, I'm sure you don't believe it, but like, I think we're doing this. And um, yeah, that was at All In, which was from All In to when it all started was was pretty long. So, um, you know, I kept that under my hood. I'm a good secret keeper. And uh, <laughs> and it was pretty exciting. And, and, and for some reason, like, I didn't doubt it, you know, in, in wrestling, I've been wrestling now 21 years. And, you know, for a long time, you know, I've been told different things. You know, I, I once was given this contract God, I can't remember this name, but it was kind of funny. It was another owner of a football team was supposed to own a team and I got a contract for it. And, you know, I, I got a lot of like fake offers to China and to, to move to Hong Kong, I remember. And it's just, you just know these things aren't going to happen. So many tours of Africa and Israel that just never have happened. But for some reason, it just seemed and sounded legit just as they were just kind of telling me. And so as all the steps went along and they would tell me about it or I would read about it, it all seemed about right. And it also made sense. The Bucks and Cody and Kenny and Hangman, they were the hottest thing in wrestling. They were, you know, I watched it at Ring of Honor when it was, you know, X amount of people. And then, you know, being the elite became so hot. And then I watched the numbers go up. I watched everything go up. I, you know, I saw all in, you know, I was up to be able to be a part of all in. And 
for someone to to realize and to understand that I, I, I don't think it's pretty obvious, but there's just so much you have to put into in order to get that thing on a higher ground. Uh, it made sense. So I understood why Tony would take this gamble and this risk. We're talking was with the Col- first time you met uh, Tony Khan. Sorry. To, uh, I know, sorry. but I love that Tony Schiavone put in that like official radio broadcast. You were doing, what would you call that? We're, that was like a side of some sort, Tony. Okay. We're talking with Colt Capanna <laughs> on AEW Unrestricted. And now with the next question, uh, here's Aubrey Edwards. Aubrey, go ahead. When was the first time you met Tony Khan, Colt? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it must have been when I when I would I kind of came in. Uh, I did AEW Dark as a commentator, just to kind of, you know, I was kind of courted to come in and to meet Tony, and uh, I was wanted to be a part of the team. But you know, I think like any boss, you want to make sure the guy that you're hiring isn't a schmuck, you know. So mm. I think it was just the idea of meeting each other one on one and saying hello and kind of you know understanding each other's values and. Um, and I don't think anyone has anything bad to say about Tony Khan, and hopefully no one has anything bad to say. Well, a couple of people have stuff bad to say about me, but I think enough people have, the, have right things, uh, have good things to say about me. And so it was a nice meeting, and I think we were two like-minded people when it came to the world of professional wrestling and how great it is and how great it can be. And so, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about comedic wrestling. Sure. All right. Uh, what got you interested in that? Because you're a comedian? You're, you're a funny guy. I mean, you are. Semi-professional. Yeah. There's just so many layers to comedy wrestling and it's a whole podcast in itself. And of course, you know, a cheap plug. I, I did a documentary about comedy wrestling called wrestling road diaries, three fun equals money available on Colt merch or to download on digital cult.com. But I believe, you know, and I've, I've been over the years, I've been able to like dissect my wrestling style and a lot of like try and fail and trying to understand where you do things and why you do things. And so that's why wrestling a lot, a lot of matches is so important for wrestlers is because you need these failing opportunities to learn what you did right and what you did wrong. And so I've had thousands of matches to kind of like test what works, why it works, why it doesn't work. And that's a lot of the help and success in comedy wrestling. So I guess it would, it's hard to explain, but well, I'm trying to explain it. You're doing a great job. Keep going. Yeah. But I, I feel that like to be a great comedy wrestler, you have to be a great wrestler first. You have to be a great regular wrestler first. You need that foundation. And then then you then have to add the spice and add the tricks and add the extra layer of now adding on top of adding comedy on top of actual pro wrestling. Because I believe that comedy wrestling can't just be dumb skits it really has to be woven into the foundation of what your professional wrestling is and so there's a lot of different variations and like yes i love like a good fart joke or whatever it might be but if you really want to consider yourself a a comedic wrestler it's there's got to be so many more layers than a a, than a one-time joke or a one a one-hit wonder if you will so i love comedy I'm a comedy fan. I'm an alternative comedy fan first and foremost it's that's what i love besides professional wrestling I'm very inspired by comedians. I'm inspired by comedy. And there came to a point in my career where I was just being regular wrestler guy and and I, I wasn't standing out the way I wanted to. I was standing out pretty well, but not the way I wanted to. And the idea of bringing in my love of comedy into my world of wrestling started to make sense for me. And I started to experiment with that. And I would say that was like around 2003 or 2004. So it's been 
over 16 years of experimenting right now to kind of find the perfect formula. And that's kind of what my career has been. Now, that's my number one love. I love comedy wrestling. But people don't understand that if you put me in situations that incur uh, non-comedy wrestling, you know, violent wrestling, hardcore wrestling, storytelling wrestling, whatever it might be, I'm more than capable and do enjoy it. And you're probably going to, you probably have seen it and are going to see it more with some of the stuff as the Dark Order is trying to court me into their uh, stable. Right. But if you just say, go have a match that no one, that is a match that represents your style, to me, it's going to be comedy. But if you if you want other stuff, I can and will, and I'm more than happy to do it. But my first and foremost love is to make people laugh uh, with some jokes and some wrestling. We're talking with Colt Cabana on AEW Unrestricted. You want to talk to Colt about his indie days and his days in the WWE. This is AEW Unrestricted. We're here with Colt Cabana, talking a little bit about comedy wrestling, how he got into all elite wrestling. But we want to talk a little bit about your indie background and kind of the story leading up to where we're at now. So you originally were trained in Chicago, I think by Ace Steel and... Danny Dominion, yeah. Right, that's right, that's right. How did you end up hooking up with them? Well, uh, you know, for for me, for years of podcasting, a lot of people know my story and, and a lot of the past, but I'm happy to always say it. I, I've always loved pro wrestling. I've been obsessed with pro wrestling since I was a child. Tony Schiavone is one of the voices of my childhood, of course. So cool to be uh, on a podcast with, with Tony. And I wanted to be a pro wrestler. Uh, I was reading the dirt sheets uh, in junior high school. Like I got a mailed to my house. You know, I thought it was cool knowing the inside of wrestling. I always say that reading those and seeing like this person in Memphis was running a show in front of a hundred people. I thought to myself like, Oh, well, I know I can't wrestle in front of 10,000 people, but I could wrestle in front of a hundred people in Memphis. So that gave me kind of the inspiration that I knew I could be a wrestler in some form. I wanted to not go to college. I wanted to go right to a wrestling school. My parents said, you have to go to college. You can do wrestling after you graduate college. And so I said, okay, if I'm going to go to college, then I better play college football because Jim Ross always talks about people's college football experience. So <laughs> I went to Western Michigan University, which was the very best football program I could get into. And that would allow me on the team. They are a division one, a team in the mid American conference in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I redshirted for one year. I never played. I was the worst player on the team, probably the worst division one, a college football player of all time. But all I needed was to get that on my resume. So one day Jim Ross could say Colt Cabana from Western Michigan university. So I ended up quitting football after one season. And I said to my parents, I have to start wrestling. I, I have to. I, you know, I couldn't take it not doing it. And they said, okay, as long as you finish college, you can train and wrestle while you go to college. And that is what I did. I found a school in Chicago called the Steel Domain. It was ran and operated by Danny Dominion and Ace Steel. And that was in Portage Park, Illinois on Six Corners, uh, right off of Irving Park. And that's kind of where I started. And then, of course, side note, when I started with AEW, I said, Jim, Jim Ross, I got one dream here, buddy. I'm going to need you to say that I played at Western Michigan University. Who knows if he cared or what not, but he said it. He did. It made my day. And then, of course, the comedian in me, I then went to Excalibur and I said, Excalibur, Jim Ross is going to say I played at Western Michigan University. I need you to say I was the worst college football player of all time. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so it was a real one-two punch on my, uh, on my debut match. Uh, speaking of Excalibur, talk about your experiences with uh, PWG. Yeah, I was on the very first PWG show. 
if you think about that, PWG was started by six wrestlers in Southern California looking for something different. I was a Chicago-based pro wrestler. And so that's kind of weird to say that they were using all their friends and some other people that they knew. And I'm from Chicago. Where do I meet in there? You know, where do I come in there? It's kind of an interesting question. But, you know, at that point, when PWG started, I was wrestling all over the Midwest and on the East Coast. And I had actually, my parents, uh, I'm sorry, my I have a lot of family that live in Los Angeles. So I had hooked up with some people when I visited my family in Los Angeles and I had gotten on a, a Rev Pro show is what it was called. Originally, Excalibur started with Rev Pro and this show was at Frankensons in Los Angeles, California, maybe Anaheim, California. From there, I had made, you know, I had now made friends with Excalibur and Super Dragon and some of the other wrestlers out there. Taro was a wrestler out there and PWG you know, they wanted a show that was different from everything else in LA. I think much, you know, much like the outcasts we all are, there was people in LA saying like, you guys didn't belong and they started their own thing and they wanted something different. And, and, you know, luckily I was something different and I was making a big name for myself on the independent shows and I wasn't that expensive. And so uh, I came in and I did the first PWG show and then I did a bunch, you know, I, I did a bunch after that for years you know i think my last one was maybe 2011 or 2012 and pwg was you know there was a lot of different embodiments and spirits of independent wrestling that i saw you know when i first started and you know daniels is a good person to talk about this about the idea of what an independent wrestling show was in 1994 or 1995 it was a high school it was you know it was a lot of old men that were just like kind of super gassed up and um, you know, maybe like a couple of kids, you know, younger wrestlers, but it really wasn't that much. So I kind of caught in the, the, the tail of that in 1999 when I started. And there was a lot of us, and by young kids, I mean 18 or 19 years old. Yeah, let me interrupt you. I thought when you said old man gassed up, I thought you were talking about the people in the crowd. Or I mean, I thought oh, you were talking about maybe. Which way, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm talking about 40 year old wrestlers that were shooting steroids oh, into their butt. Gotcha. <laughs> Okay. Who didn't care about maneuvers. Yeah. All they cared about <laughs> was how much weight they could lift and how good they looked in outfits. Gotcha. Although I do, I love the idea of a 70 year old steroided man in the audience watching these shows. <laughs> that's, that's good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Double buy, colostomy bag. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Just doing double buys the whole time. Of course. Year as years went by, independent wrestling started to kind of get away from those, you know, middle school shows or high school shows, and and into what I always loved about it, and I always thought was cool, and I didn't think other people understood was the underground aspect, the alternative aspect. And as someone who loves alt comedy, I always thought you know alt wrestling is is the same idea of it, and so PWG kind of became the spirit of alt wrestling especially when it got to Reseda, you know, in this 400 seat VFW hall ran by this crazy guy, cheap beer. And, you know, just a thing that nobody would know about even people walking outside. It's like, nobody would know that's what's going on inside. But if you knew what's going inside, the best professional, someone who is the best at their thing. And there's 20 of them are doing it in this building. And if you know, you know, and if you don't know, you have no clue. And that's what I love about independent wrestling. You know, for me, PWG, that in Los Angeles, that's what that was. Now, there was, 
there was different ones all over AEW in Chicago, you know, ICW in, in Scotland, you know, Luch of a Voom was a weird independent one, AIW in Cleveland. I mean, these things were happening all over. But of course, that's where I first met Excalibur. It was in Pro Wrestling Grill. Okay, let's talk about Ring of Honor, where you wrestled and did commentary as well. Yeah, I, I was very early to Ring of Honor. I think that was the very one of the very first visions of trying to do it on a bigger scale, uh, of taking all of these talents who were getting all of these buzz in all these little places. And so, you know, the first shows that I was on for Ring of Honor you know, I was there and then like Donovan Morgan was there from California and Spanky and Brian Danielson from Washington state and Roderick Strong from Florida and Samoa Joe from California, Xavier from, you know, New York uh, in the SATs from New York. So it was just someone was finally like, let's get this, you know, the top talent. It was like the earliest it was like the newest tiered territory thing. The territories were dead. This was like mini Vince McMahon trying to pick up the best talent on a really small budget, you know? Sure. And, uh, and that's what it was, you know, someone had that idea and, and, you know, uh, and that was ring of honor. And so I, I was able to wrestle from there. I think 2002 I debuted and then, you know, up until 2007 when I signed with WWE and then in 2009, I came back with ring of honor uh, and then I, you know, I was fired from there and then I came back again. And so I guess that's kind of what wrestling is, but I, I've spent a, a long tenure in ring of honor and I've seen many different variations of it, you know, but at the end of the day, the spirit was always about good wrestling. That's what I always loved about ring of honor was, was good wrestling was, was at the foremost before anything else. So in between your first run at ring of honor in 2006, there was wrestling society X. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And you were on the show, I think, in a mask character, Matt Classic? Well, for kayfabe reasons, he's my mentor. Right, but, right. But I'm Sorry. very close to Matt Classic. Wink, nudge, wink, nudge, nudge, wink. Mm. Tell us about your relationship with Matt Classic. Uh, well, for the, for the story's sake, I will just place myself into Matt Classic's shoes. Oh, that's convenient. Thank you. Yes, it's definitely not me. <laughs> yeah, Kevin Kleinrock, I think this was through a, a company called Big Vision Entertainment. And this guy, Houston Curtis, who was also, allegedly, he was portrayed by somebody in this movie where this girl took over a gambling ring with famous people in Los Angeles. Do you know which one I'm talking about? It's where this lady was like, she was like the house manager of a poker, a high stakes poker game with, I think, Sp the guy who played Spider-Man, allegedly Tobey Maguire. I'm not sure. Right. <laughs> I've learned to say allegedly a lot in podcasts now. You're talking about that movie about... Uh... What are we talking about here? <laughs> so there was a movie about this lady who was yes. was running a high stakes gambling. Oh, what's her name's game? It was called yes. uh, Sadie's Game or. Everyone's going to tweet. Don't tweet us. Well, we're obviously going to Google it once this is done. Now I'm going to Google it now. Right. So somebody in that game was a guy named Houston Curtis. Okay. And Houston Curtis ran Big Vision Entertainment, who was the brainchild of Wrestling Society X. Okay. And the brainchild of Backyard Wrestling featuring Matt Cross and Josh Prohibition, Sanjay Dutt, amongst many others. The name you were looking for was Molly Bloom of Molly's Game. Molly's Game. Molly's Game, Molly's right. Game. Okay. So the so one of the characters in Molly's Game <laughs> was also the guy who was the visionary for Backyard Wrestling and Wrestling Society X. And he, okay. Kevin Kleinrock ran the whole thing. It was great. Kevin Kleinrock was also an an originator in the idea of let's take people that 
are good on the independent scene and give them this opportunity to wrestle on MTV on something bigger. And he did that for Tyler Black, uh, who's now obviously Seth, Seth Rollins and Matt Cross. And I mean, this is just, there's just so many that you can go back and just look at all the names that were on that thing that were kind of nobody's at the point. I, for the sake of the story, <laughs> um, was supposed to be on episode, was supposed to be on season two, but I really wanted to be a part of it. And I, I kind of fibbed a little bit and said, well, I, if you don't put me on season one, I'm going to go sign a contract somewhere else, mm. uh, which, which was not a thing. But I wanted to be a part of it so bad. And he said, okay, well, what if we put you under a mask and we pay you and you could do the show and then season two will debut Colt Cabana. And I was like, great, let's do that. Because I believed, and you got to remember this was 2006. I was 26 years old. I was watching MTV. I was of that generation. I loved Jackass. The Wrestling Society show literally followed Bam Margera's new TV show. I thought this was going to be a hit. And I wanted to be part of a generation that was on wrestling, that was on wrestling on MTV and not necessarily, you know, on USA or, or, or spike or whatever it was, you know, or the TNT TNN network. I think it was at the time. Right. Yeah. And you know, sadly it had one season. It didn't really catch on, but what a try, you know, what a try. And there were some weird things and some good things. And that's what it's all about. It's about experimenting, but I do believe that it could have been, you know, on wrestling on MTV, like independent wrestling or wrestling needed something. And that was a, a heck of a try at the time. Good try. Good try. Are those available on YouTube? They must be. Yeah. I, I need to check them out. I mean, it's been over a decade. They have to be, right? Someone has to have uploaded them. Yeah. Somebody, I, I got to check those out. I want to talk about uh, the time you spent in the WWE, which was a couple of years. Are we allowed to talk about them here? Oh, yeah. We are. Yeah. That was more of a joke, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> Why wouldn't we? Half our roster's married to people there. This is news. This is a news <laughs> podcast. So you, you debuted in uh, Ohio Valley as uh, Colt Boom Boom Cabana. Yeah, that's where I changed my name from uh, classic Colt Cabana to right. Colt Boom Boom Cabana. I wanted something a little more spicier. I was able to restart, and I was like, well, I'll give myself a new nickname. Where'd you come up with Boom Boom? I mean, that was it. Just wanted something fun. I think Freddie Boom Boom Washington was the uh, the inspiration on that one. Right. Let's see. Uh, you debuted on SmackDown as Scotty Goldman in 2008. Did I? Yeah. Did I? That's what it says here. Why the, why the name change? I'm pretty sure I blocked that out of my memory, but I guess <laughs> if that's... If you're going to say that's right, then the internet doesn't lie. We know that. We asked Matt Classic before we did this. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I got signed. At that point, I'd, I'd done so much, um, not everything, but I'd done a lot on the independence. It was 2006. I was making a full-time living. I had done the MTV show. I was traveling to Japan for Zero One. I was a full-time wrestler, basically in England also for 1PW and doing the Butlins camps. I spent two whole summers over in England. I was doing it, you know, wrestling in Mexico. I was doing it. I was, I was doing the experience, the life of an independent wrestler who didn't need a job. You know, at 23, I was able to quit my job as a teaching assistant and do this full time on very little money, but enough money that it'll get me by so I could do it full time and I can chase my dream. You know, I said to myself, uh, I'm going to do this. And when I'm 30, if, if nothing's happening, then I'll go and get my, get my teaching degree. But I'm giving myself till 30 to at least do something, you know, figure out something. And, you know, luckily, you know, not even at 26 or 27 when I signed my WD contract, because even before then I was doing great. I was doing wonderful. I actually took a 50% pay decrease 
to wrestle for the WWE when I signed my contract. But I said to myself, this is an investment in my future. You know, there's only so much you can make on the independent scene. Yes, I'm taking a 50% decrease, but the possibilities to be a millionaire are there. And so that's the gamble I'm willing to take. Showed up at OVW. The fun thing was OVW was in Louisville, Kentucky, and I had spent three or four years developing myself as a pro wrestler on the outskirts of Louisville, Kentucky for IWA Mid-South, traveling there literally almost once a week. And so the same fans were the same fans there. So I walked into OVW and I was immediately over, you know, that uh, they knew me, they knew me as a wrestler. They wanted to cheer for me. And that's the beautiful thing as a baby face is you need that. You need people to like you for some reason. And, and everyone, the fans, they knew, they knew my story. They knew it well. They saw me since I was, in college, driving down to Louisville, Kentucky from Kalamazoo, Michigan, every single week, sometimes twice a week, uh, until here I am, you know, under this system. And so I did really well in OVW, never got called up. Everyone moved to Florida. Uh, I did really well in Florida, never got called up. And it came to a point, and I remember Dusty Rhodes saying, he's just like, you don't need to be in the system, you know, it's just, you're here there's no reason for you to be here, but it is what it is. And I think that came to a point for a lot of us. And that's when I got moved up and a lot of us got moved up was, you know, they don't need to be down there. So let's just give them a couple of weeks and see if they work up there. And so uh, I tried to show up and I tried to be Colt Cabana. My name was, you know, quickly changed at that point. They were changing a lot of people's names. I've got a couple of stories of where Goldman came from. You know, I heard, you know, Vince was like, is he really Jewish? And they're like, yeah, I guess. And so, all right, Goldman. And I, you know, I don't know why Scotty, I mean, I know why Scotty, but I don't know why that was the name. And Scotty Goldman appeared losing his debut match to Brian Kendrick in under two minutes for, you know, as a platform for Brian Kendrick to move into uh, a match against Triple H, I think. And so, you know, that was the spot I was given. Maybe other people will succeed in that manner. Who knows? You know, the next match, it was me and Kung Fu Naki versus Kozlov in a handicap match and again you know that was the spot I was given I was happy to do it but you know I, in my head that's not how you debut wrestlers or, or ones that you think highly of and so that's I kind of think how I was thought of now if I've always been a person who impresses people over time <laughs> like that's always been my theory I'm always a slow burn that should have been my name slow burn cold cabana <laughs> uh, you know I'll win you over you know one at a time and that was my plan was to not ruffle any feathers was to try to get in there, try to get over very from the bottom up. And funny enough, a lot of the writers who were my age really liked my style of comedy and humor. And I was given a, a WWE.com show before YouTube was even a thing, really. And I was able to kind of write it myself under the radar. And also there was a thing called the, the WWE Universe was their attempt at a MySpace. And I remember being like, because all the WWE wrestlers got to have their own WWE Universe accounts. And I remember thinking that was going to be my way in, was I was going to use my charm and wit by writing blogs and videos. And I did. I wrote a lot of funny little things on there. And I got a lot of WWE fans to be my fans for the underdog. Not the TV. No one was watching me on TV. But through that and through the WWE.com show, that was going to be my way to slowly win people over. After five matches... I mean, I still don't know the story. I wrestled Umaga. Uh, oh, Aubrey, were you there? Uh, I was not actually in wrestling yet at that point. Well, it was in Portland. What, what year is this? 2000... 2009. 2009. I actually was not a wrestling fan yet. Not a wrestling fan. Okay. This was in Portland. I wrestled Umaga. I was losing very quickly. 
I lost. Umaga came back down the ramp and beat me again for some reason. I came back. I said, what happened? Everyone said, ah, we just want another shot. Uh, that was, I think, a Friday on SmackDown. And then I think on Monday, I got called and told I was released. So, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, of course, the best thing that ever happened to me, because I then said to myself, I'm obviously not going there. So it's either I go back to a real job or I take this independent wrestling thing as far as I possibly can. And that's exactly what I did. So obviously the best thing for my career by far, but that's the, uh, the life and times of Scotty Goldman, Tony. There you go. The life and times of Scotty Goldman. Shalom. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, what we know slow burn about more as much as anything else is on a national level is podcasting and twitching and, ColdCabana.com and all that. And that's what we want to talk to you about next. This is AEW Unrestricted. We're talking to Colt Slowburn Cabana. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get Marvez to change that. It's so good. I, we love it. Not even saying anything. Just on the slide. Just like, what? What is this? That'll be my lower third from now on. Yes. Yes. Lower thirds. I love it. So had successful indie run, went to WWE. Interesting experience. Come back to indies. It's completely changing the game with the podcasting, the merchandising, independent wrestling completely took off. And I mean, it's, it's, you're, I've already put you in over, over enough on this, but like, you're a huge part of why people make so much money in merchandising in wrestling. I mean, I was always like that before I went to WWE, because again, I said to myself that I'm going to do this full time. And if I was going to do this full time, I, I, I had to budget it out for myself. I, I, I knew I made X amount wrestling. But I knew that wasn't enough. And so I said to myself, what are more ways I can make money so I can live being a wrestler? And of course, that was the merchandise stand. And so, you know, not a lot of people were doing it before me. There were people, you know, there's a wrestler, an old AWA wrestler named Johnny Stewart, who I would watch at the at the merchandise table. He wrestled in the uh, the later days as illustrious Johnny Stewart on some of those ESPN AWA shows. And I would watch him try to schmooze at the gimmick table and and there was other wrestlers out there and so i knew that that was something to do so some way to do it and so when i came back you know to the independence that was a big part of my thing the number of wrestlers at merch tables selling gimmicks you know was me chris hero claudio castagnoli who's now cesaro uh matt cross was a big one and maybe Jimmy Jacobs or Eric Cannon, but it was very few and far between. And which is funny now because it's almost like if you go to these shows on the independent level, if you're not selling something, they're almost uh, ripping on you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I took that idea and I wanted to make it even bigger. Uh, a lot of times I said to myself, I know these people come, well, I mean, I'll take a step back. The podcast was the ultimate commercial to tell people to buy stuff uh, from me or have them support me in any way. I was getting very popular with the podcast and I was doing, but I was all, of course on the road 200 days a year as an independent wrestler. And I'd go to these shows and they'd be quote unquote meet and greets, AKA stand in my line at the merch stand. And I'd say like, well, there's all these people here, but there's all, also all these people who live in Montana and Idaho and, and just have no way to get to these great independent wrestling shows. How do we get this stuff to them? And so that's when I would put all my stuff online. And of course I had my stuff online on MySpace. They had an option for a PayPal button back in 2006 or whatever it was but facebook did not have an option for a paypal button so i started my own website to just sell my own stuff so i could put a paypal button on and that's where 
coltmerch.com came from. It's still up today. And I enjoy the process of shipping and, and packing it myself. You can see all my stuff back here if you're watching on a video. I mean, there's, all my stuff is back here in my office. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that moved into even a bigger picture and a bigger idea with not only doing it for myself, but doing it for literally everybody with Pro Wrestling Tees. A lot of it started with the podcast and also... I don't think that my documentary, The Wrestling Road Diaries, gets enough credit in my history, too, of starting a lot of that off, too. I want, I want to go back just because I've been doing a podcast since 2017, and every when I first started doing the podcast, everybody would say, well, you know, the father of wrestling podcast is Cole Cabana. When did that start for you, and when, when did you have an idea you're going to do that? When did, the, when, did all that when did all that get formed? Yeah, I started The Art of Wrestling in in June of 2010, I believe, maybe it was July of 2010. Okay. And at that point, I would talk about on my, on my social medias or whatever, my obsession with comedy and alternative comedy. And there was this uh, referee out of Indianapolis named David who once, uh, I think, emailed me and said, hey, you know these comedians are doing these podcasts. And he sent me a link to Zach Galifianakis on a podcast called Comedy Bang Bang. And so that was kind of the very first one I saw. And at that point, that was Scott Ackerman, who was in the comedy world, talking with his friends, uh, Zach Galifianakis, and eventually John Hamm and John Daly and Brett Gelman and all of these people who were all friends within the business on this free thing called a podcast. I love that idea. And then I started searching for more and I find different ones. Mark Marin, I eventually found. And Jimmy Dore had a podcast back then. Uh, Never Not Funny with Jimmy Pardo. He had a podcast. There's all these people in the comedy world talking with their friends. They were in the world. And so I, I would then go find the wrestling podcasts, but it was all people outside of the world of professional wrestling. Nobody in the world of wrestling had a weekly podcast. And I knew that's where wrestling was missing And I saw the success and I saw myself as an outsider from the comedy world, looking inside to the comedy world and enjoying that life of a podcast saying, I know as if you're an outsider of a wrestling world, you would love the inside of the wrestling world. And that's where it first started for me, where I was like, eventually someone's going to do that being inside the wrestling world full time doing a wrestling podcast. You know, maybe six months went by, nobody did it. And I just said, well, I guess I have to be the one to do it. I just started. I didn't really know what I was doing. I got some help from some other people. My friend Stu Stone uh, was working with a guy named Cable Guy Jeff, and he kind of helped me set up a, a, a video or a, an RSS feed. I really didn't know. And then probably after eight weeks, it got to the point where I was like, well, I need to be editing this. I can't rely on you. You don't care about this as much as I do. Mm-hmm. And that's where I taught myself GarageBand. I taught myself how to, you know, how to edit and upload. And I just taught myself everything so I can be reliant because I always say like in my head, it was the most important thing, but I knew stepping out of my body that nobody else looked at it as the most important thing. I'm the one who had the most, I had the most in it. Yeah. And that's what I felt for myself for my career too. You know, when I was with WWE, it's like, they just looked at me as like a thing and I wasn't the most important thing to them, but I'm the most important thing to me. And so that's why I wanted full control of my career. And that's what I was doing by starting the podcast. Now, before that, myself and Daniel Bryan, Bryan Danielson, we had filmed this movie based, I based it off of a movie called The Comedians of Comedy with Bryan Posehn, Zach Galifianakis, Maria Bamford, uh, and Patton Oswald. They were like four 
independent comedians and made this really great documentary about the lifestyle of a traveling independent comedian. And I was like, man, the world has to see that version for wrestling because we've seen the ones where there are, you know, there was tourgasm with Dane Cook at that time where he was, they had a giant bus, you know, that was a million dollar bus. And like for the wrestlers, it's like, well, we're in a $10,000 van, you know, eventually Brian and I had made that movie. And as we were putting it out, Brian got signed by the WWE. So it was on me to completely push out there and to advertise. And I knew, well, I'd have to go on these radio shows or podcasts to advertise. But then I was like, I don't want to go on these podcasts. I don't like them. No one ever really makes a real connection with me. And a lot of that was the idea of like, well, if I have my own show, I'll be able to, to weekly push this documentary as my own commercial on my own podcast. So like so many different things tied into the reason why that movie and the podcast kind of came at the same time and were so important for each other. God, I love it. So the um, Wrestling Road Diaries, do you think there's ever going to be a fourth one? I'd love to. It's so weird. I've talked to David Arquette about possibly making one with David and RJ City. Yeah, because like you're, I'm looking for different <laughs> variations and that's just such a wild story. I don't know. As great as AEW is, you know, the spirit of those things are really about like jumping in a car and just doing it. I'm so grateful. I'm at a point now where, you know, we're flown and we're put up at these, you know, nice hotels and there's catering for us. So I don't know if AEW is is the ideal wrestling road diaries for but uh david arquette and tijuana with cole cabana that's a that's <laughs> that has money written all over it there you go it sure does <laughs> how's the uh, twitch going the twitch channel yeah i started a twitch yay you started a twitch yeah i really like it it's really fun i know nothing about video games <laughs> but i do know about comedy and i've been playing jackbox video games uh which are party games with wrestling fans on Twitch and we only use wrestling answers. So there's a couple of games on there that give you scenarios to put in answers, but we're only allowed to put in wrestling answers. It's been so fun. I'm having a great time and I'm really enjoying connecting with wrestling fans. The one thing that does like make me sad is I like to think I'm an early adopter. I was early in on podcasting. I was early in on YouTube series. I was early in on making these kind of behind the scenes independent wrestling thing. I know I'm not early on Twitch. So that kind of makes me sad that I'm a, a bandwagon jumper right now, but I'm okay with that. I'm having such a great time and I, I invite everyone to join me and play games with me. Okay, very cool. Uh, fans also give you subway cards, we understand. Yeah. <laughs> How did that start and what's the story behind that? This girl named Michaela in my in my Twitch told me that she works at Subway and I was like, I'm a bigger fan of you than you are of me, I think. <laughs> You know, the same way that the Young Bucks, you know, got Cracker Barrel to sponsor a giant arena show. Right. These are the places that we go when we're on the road. You know, these are the, the things that we know. And for me, Subway was always very quick. I'm a pretty picky eater and I, I'm not that extravagant of an eater. So all I need is some chicken breasts and something easy. That was kind of always my go-to. I remember when I was, when I got the first Wrestling Road Diaries, I was filling out so many orders and filling them myself, and I, I was too stubborn to get labels over the internet, so I was writing them all out myself, and it got to the point where it was like thousands of them, and I was putting in like 16-hour days, and I needed to do them really fast, 
and I was like, well, I got to eat. So I would run over and Subway was right across the street from me. You know, like I became friends with the guy and he knew my order as I walked in. It got to that point. So that was, I was like, run in, get a six inch sub, double chicken breast, hollow out the inside, six inch wheat, tomato pickles, oregano, and just a little honey mustard. That's a quick plug for my order. <laughs> and, you know, and, and then you, Tony, you know, as a podcaster, you, you're talking about what you're doing. So yes, right. You know, that just kind of came up. I was, you know, talking about my days, what belongs in a day. And I would talk about the idea of filling out these orders and fulfilling these orders and going to the DVD place and getting the DVDs and putting them in myself. And also I would talk about going over to Subway and then the great thing about podcasting, which I learned very early, was they want to support. They love the idea of supporting. That's why when you see me at the merchandise table, especially early in those days and, and still now, I don't want a money handler. I want someone to hand over their $20 for a t-shirt and I want them to know this $20 is helping me earn a living, pay my rent, pay the gas bill, put food in my stomach. You as a fan, you're literally helping me and I think there's a disconnect. And I think that's the difference in generations was the generations before wanted to be seen as superstars. And I believe some of our generation, we want to be known as someone who is just like you, except we just happen to train a lot and really be dedicated to this one specific thing, which is pro wrestling. But we know that you as a fan, you have trained a lot and you have dedicated to whatever you are doing, which may be art, which may be music, which may be graphics, which may be sewing, which may be analytics, which may be data, whatever it is, you understand the same passion that we have. And I will be a fan of yours if I get the opportunity and I know about it and I can learn about it the same way that you're a fan of mine. That's a tremendous attitude. I mean, that really is. That To me, that says a lot. Did you uh, ever hear anything from Subway itself, the, the corporation? Yeah, you know, I tweeted them, you know, I would, or fans would put me in their tweets enough that Subway did send me a card once. And they also sent me a full sweatshirt that had subs all over it. <laughs> How nice of them. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty great. But uh, KFC did the same thing too. Yeah. I once went to bat for KFC. I also was once at a KFC commercial weirdly enough, arm wrestling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did you arm wrestle like the Colonel? Like No, I, I arm wrestled Cliff Compton actually. Gotcha. So I, I was I was on a podcast, <laughs> a very popular podcast called WTF with Mark Marin. I think I was the first wrestler on that on Mark Marin's podcast, which was an inspiration for the art of wrestling. And someone who had worked in the arts had learned that I lived in Chicago and he was making a KFC commercial in Chicago. And he had reached out to me with this idea of doing an arm wrestling commercial. And he asked me if I would want to be in it. And then anyone, do I know anybody? And I, I said, Oh, Cliff will do it. And so then I did a commercial for them. It actually it went viral, but it was only allowed to live on the internet for, I think a year. It is on my sneakily on my Patreon though. It's off the internet now. KFC then, I think I went to bat for them. Someone was making fun of them or something. And I said, I'm going to stick up for KFC. And they sent me an actual Louisville bat uh, inscribed with my name, Cole Cabana, a Louisville slugger. How about that? Yeah. How about that? Very cool. Well, you know, uh, I, I want to go back to what you were saying about wrestlers today versus wrestlers, 90s, that we don't see. I, I feel the same way you do. I mean, I, I, I want the fans to know that I am just like them. I want the fans to know that I just happen to be on this side of the camera. I was a big wrestling fan just like you were, and I just happened to, it happened to also be my vocation. And I think that's very important to reach out to the fans and have a connect with them. Uh, and I applaud you for that. I really do. Well, thank you. Yeah, I remember when WWE, 
they would always say Vince wanted larger than life. Vince wanted larger than life. And I always just remember, and I even, I wrote a bunch of paragraphs and sent them to people being like, I am not larger than life. And I think that's why people will like me. Right. I always say this, the first person I related to now, I loved wrestling growing up. I watched it all. But when Mick Foley had those videos of him in his backyard, being a 17 year old kid jumping off the roof. Mm -hmm. And I know you shouldn't do it or try it at home, but Boy, did that hit me saying like, Mm -hmm. that's exactly what I do. And I related so much to Mick on such a deeper level. There was just something from my heart to his, whatever it was. And I know he didn't know who I was or whatever. Right. But that's what grabbed me was watching those videos on television of him as a kid being my age, jumping off the roof, just like I did. And I, I think there's power in that. Yep. I do too. Colt, we appreciate your time, buddy. You're a credit to our business, many levels. Thank you very much. Well, I, I thank you for having me so much. I love being uh, able to share locker room with both of you every single week. Thanks, man. And thanks, yeah. All right, we've been talking to Cole Cabana on AEW Unrestricted. And don't forget, you can get our podcast. For free. Uh, that's right, wherever you get your podcast. Uh, also, please leave us a rating and review while you're at it. It only takes a few seconds. Let us know how you like it, right? Please, please, please. You can check out the video portion of this on our YouTube channel. Just search AEW Unrestricted. I'm Tony Schiavone. I'm Aubrey Edwards. You can also watch All Elite Wrestling Dynamite Wednesdays on TNT at 8 Eastern, 7 Central. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Colt. Thanks.